Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. James Siena is an artist who was born in California in 1957. He spent most of his formative years in Washington, D.C., and he got his BFA from Cornell University. His intricate, rule-based abstractions are made of intensely concentrated, vibrant, freehand geometric patterns. He works across a diverse range of media, including lithography, etching, woodcut engraving, drawing, and painting. His work is in numerous public and private collections across the United States, including the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Museum of Modern Art, and the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. He's lectured at numerous institutions throughout the United States, including the MFA Fine Arts Department at the School of Visual Arts. He completed a residency at Yaddo, where he's also now on the board. I sat down with James in the middle of his current show at Pace Gallery to talk about his early days of getting by in New York, his love of music, and his collection of vintage typewriters. Here's our conversation. So, um, yeah, we can start. Okay. I, I'd love to, I mean, you're, you've, you've been around. You've been around for a while in New York, and I think yeah. we've shared stories in the past about your old studios. And so I'd, I'd love to get the backstory on, like, when you got to New York, how you got here from school, like, your past. I moved here in October of, I keep, I keep getting confused about this, 82 or 83, I mm-hmm. think it's, I think it was 82. Yeah. Um, but it might have been 83, no it was 83 because I turned 25 a week after I, no, 82, I was born in 57, so that would mean 1982, right, 25 years. Um, I had gone to school in upstate New York, mm-hmm. Cornell University, and then moved to Spain for a while. Right out of school? Right out of school. Well, not, no, not right out of school. I, um, I painted my father's house mm-hmm. inside and out, and then I went to Spain. Was that like the summer, the it, summer job after school? It wasn't really a summer job. It was, I'll give you a plane ticket if you paint my house oh, inside and out. So you earned it. I did like a $10,000 paint job and got a $400 plane ticket. Right. <laughs> that was okay. That was family, uh, what is it called? Filial piety. You know, you, yeah, yeah. you honor your father. And um, I lived in Mallorca. Yeah. Because there was a, a college classmate named Deborah Bonner whose family had moved there in the 50s um, for various reasons. Uh, Her father was a student of uh, Catalan and Mallorquin, the dialect of Catalan. Mm -hmm. He became a translator. And I'd always liked languages, and I spoke French, middling French, and no Spanish at all. I thought it'd be great to live in Spain, learn Spanish, and become an expatriate. Yeah. I, thought, I, didn't, I thought, I don't need to live in New York. I don't want to live in New York. I'll live on, on this island in the Mediterranean. And, you know. 
So this was a permanent move. I thought it might be permanent. Yeah. It was an indefinite move. Was, yeah. That was it was. And, um, and that lasted six months. I had, an, <laughs> I had inherited $1,800. And uh, in those days, you could stretch it out for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And there was, a, there was no real art community, but I did meet a Spanish artist who's gone on to great success, a guy named Miquel Barceló. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a friend of Deborah's, and, 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 and actually a good friend of Deborah's was the daughter of two expatriate American artists, um, John Ulbricht. I can't remember her mother's name. Um, and so there was, a, there was some art going on. And we, there, we also had access, all of us sort of college, post-college people had access to a stone house in the mountains with no running water that was um, owned by Alistair Reed, who wrote about Spain for The New Yorker for many years. He wrote mm-hmm. a letter from a Spanish village, and he never identified the village. But that was it. And he wrote about Franco. Yeah, it was the town was Galilea mm-hmm. in the in the interior of um, Mallorca, and that was the house that he wrote about. And it was it was a wonderful time. It was a wonderful time. Uh, I got a lot of work done, uh, mostly works on paper. Uh, developed a nice friendship with Mikel, and he, we were both making our own paint, which was you know something we I didn't know that many people were doing. Uh, and it was very process-oriented work. Uh, he was coming out of Tapius, and I was coming out of a more um, minimalism and post-minimalism. Uh, big influence at the time for me was Tuttle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after running out of money, uh, I ended up in Washington, D.C., where my father lived, and uh, accumulated some cash and went back up to the Ithaca area and lived in a in an old run-down house, again, without running water. <laughs> well, what is it about? Oh, for two. Creature comforts, yeah, yeah oh, for two. <laughs> and, uh, and that lasted a couple of years. Uh, it was very interesting. Yeah. It was um, very pared down and um, isolated. Uh, Did you go back there just because of the familiarity of developing in school there, or was it somewhere you thought you just wanted to be? I think it was just sort of the path of least resistance. Mm-hmm. I had friends there, and I thought I could, you know, get a job up there. Um, I didn't. I, I wasn't ready for New York. But some, was it in the back of your mind, though? It, like, yeah, eventually, I'm going to try to get there. Yeah, I think it was. I was always reading about New York. I mm-hmm. read the Village Voice and the Soho News all the time. Yeah, and I worked for a fellow named Michael Baum who had a, um, a frame shop and a t-shirt company. And I convinced him to, to experiment with some of his t-shirt printing and do a kind of more art slash fashion-y punk rock type thing. We were printing entire t-shirts. We'd print these patterns all over t-shirts. We'd, we'd put the entire shirt down and just print the dashes all across yeah. it. Yeah, and they would sort of squish at the seams and. But I, you know, I, I invented this kind of padded table so there was less squish, mm-hmm. and I put, we made a company called Brown, well, Baumware. I was the only employee. I was just printing all these shirts, <laughs> and they would sell them at Fiorucci's and you know, oh, really? trash and vaudeville down yeah, there. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it, and some high-end places. Bendel's had it, 
and I ran the company for a while until he um, he automated the business and I was out of a job. Oh, you got squeezed out? By <laughs> I got, yeah, I got squeezed out by progress. Oh, man. He started to print on cut parts mm-hmm. and then have them sewn, sewn together. together yeah. yeah, the seams bugged him, and I love the seams. Oh, that's like now, that's like the handmade, like, amazing. Exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I like, I've always liked the printness of the print. Yeah. Yeah. I know, and then it, I feel like in the fashion side of things, that's, I mean, every once in a while you see it pop out, but that kind of like hand process is a really nice thing and rare, you know? Yeah. And yeah. Well, that's been something that I've been concerned about forever. Yeah. Um, and uh, the other thing he did was he, he made picture frames for people. Mostly people would just bring in things and, you know, just stuff for their collection. Right. Sometimes yeah. artists would get things framed there. And when I did finally move to New York for love mm-hmm. uh, and running water, <laughs> flush toilets. Two, two good reasons Same, to move. Two for two. Yeah. <laughs> um, what does that make? It? Now, it's even, now we're even, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, back to... And uh, I, I moved to New York and immediately applied for a job at the place where Michael Baum, the uh, owner of this company, um, bought his frame moldings. Because mm-hmm. he was making pretty nice frames. I mean, you know, they were... They weren't, you know, metal section things. They were, you know, cut, joined, sanded, finished. Did you just ask him, or you knew about it from the, the frames? Like the, it was, yeah, I kind of knew about it. Yeah. Maybe I, I didn't have conversations with, with uh, Bark Frameworks, but I, he told me about them. And when I moved to New York, it turned out they were about five blocks away from where I was living in Tribeca. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were just above Canal Street on Green Street. So they, you so got I, the gig? Yeah, I got the gig. I went, moved to New York with $400 in my pocket and got a gig working at Bark Frameworks as a sander. Mm-hmm. So holding an electric sander all day long, eight hours a day, sanding these great frames. Non-automated. No, autom- still no automation at Bark Frameworks, not even the mat cutting, yeah. which, I, which is what I turned out to learn how to do there. Yeah. And, which still uh, is which part of your work today, I imagine. This is the first time I've cut my own mats for a show, but yeah. the reason I did was because I, I drew on them. Yeah. So I just thought I'd have a little more control. I could yeah. have ordered them from Bark. I mean, I used Bark for the frames that I... Yeah, but there's one over there that looked like you notched out part of the mat. I think it looks Where? like you carved out a couple rectangles out of the mat itself. I corrected a mistake. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's the erasure. Yeah, it's a removal strategy that I use in some drawings. If I get a, if I get a mistake, either a, a stain, an oil stain, an ink stain, or a, I make an illegal move in a yeah. drawing, I'll, I'll, I'll cut it out yeah, rather there's than a foul. make it over again. Yeah. A foul. <laughs> foul ball. You commit a penalty on that page. That's right. right. So, but in that, in that particular one with the notches, or their little should I call them, uh, depressions mm-hmm. in the mat. I cut about halfway through the mat and dug it out and sanded it and finished it so I could redraw it. Yeah. Because inside mat board is much more absorbent than that surface. Than the surface. Yeah. yeah. So I had to seal all the bevels of these, of these works, mm-hmm. of these mats, in order to have them accept the ink the same way that the... Well, that it's, the a, it's a nice moment because it's camouflaged. You know, you don't see it at first and then you... You kind but, of happen upon it. But 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of people see it. Yeah. In fact, yeah. I think the person who bought it was really turned on by. Oh yeah. By it. Well, I remembered it. You know, yeah, like you it's, it jumped out to me. So. Yeah, and it didn't seem to bother you, but you know, maybe no. you didn't see it as a as a corrective. I didn't. I thought that was on purpose. Oh okay. Because you're playing with. Anyways, we'll get more into detail about that, but I don't want to forget about your stuff. <laughs> so you got the job. All right, going back to the history. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I got the job, and I worked there for about two and a half years. And were you working on your stuff at home at that point? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And what's Tribeca like in 82, 83, 84? It looks like hell on the street level, mm -hmm. and it looks like paradise upstairs. Yeah, if you can afford to go up the elevator. Yeah, I mean, the, the loft rented for $1,200 a month, which was, well... I just said I lived for eighteen for six months on eighteen hundred dollars. Right. <laughs> it it seemed just crazy. Yeah. I was making, I was make grossing six hundred dollars a month, and I mean that was five dollars an hour, and after taxes, which is a third, they take a third of your money. Yeah. You know, at that minimum wage, or it was maybe a little above minimum wage at the time. Doesn't matter. Um, I had about a hundred dollars left over for groceries and to pay for the phone. Yeah, that's not the uh, the metric they say you should do with as far as your rent to your that ratio <laughs> leftover. You know what I mean? Like they yeah. say you should make like twice. But in New York, that doesn't for happen. Most people, it's right, not the right. case. If you can make it at all, like if you yeah. can cover it, you're in a good spot. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and we, my wife at the time and I, started um, doing performances in the clubs, which paid fabulously. Oh really? Oh. It was so generous in the um, in the club scene in those days. And what were you doing? What kind of performance? Well, Iris Rose uh, is a really brilliant thinker and a, and a kind of inventor of of procedures that that lead to performances. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was with her, so she asked me to perform with her. Yeah. And I'd I'd had a kind of ham bug in me. <laughs> as, a, as a kid, I was in, you know, I was in experimental theater as a kid. And, oh, really? And in Gilbert and Sullivan operettas mm -hmm. with my family in, in Palo Alto uh, in, the, in the early 70s. And uh, so, you know, it wasn't hard for her to convince me to get up on stage and make yeah. a fool of myself, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, you could get paid for doing that in the night in that time at, at the Pyramid Club or yeah. Dance Interior, the Palladium. Or, That's uh, a nice creative, uh, you know, addition to your normal salary from using the sander. Oh yeah, we would perform at like two thirty in the morning at the Pyramid for four minutes. That's it. Yeah, we, when our performances were really compressed. Yeah. So it would take us a, a, a week to compose and rehearse a minute of this performance work, which involved a lot of simultaneous gesture, vocal, contradictory movement. Arms would do things that would not happen when legs were doing what they were doing, but you do them at the same time. It's kind of like rubbing your stomach and patting your head, but like 10 times harder than that. And then you're saying something that contradicts what your gestures are saying. N none of this is on tape anywhere, is it? It's, there's lots of it on tape. Oh, really? Yeah, the, website, the website's called watchface.nyc. 
Nice. And it's a huge archive that she and another member of our group, we, we ended up developing, developing a group and, and with a name, Watchface, and we, um, we existed until about 1992. Uh, I stopped performing in 1988. But for those five years, we did a lot of work and made some money. Yeah. And I actually wound up doing some television work and having to join the television and radio actors union, mm -hmm. AFTRA. Wow. And pay dues and got health insurance that way. That's good. My kid got born on the AFTRA dime yeah. in 1988. So, so it was something I took very seriously but never owned as me. Yeah. It was a sort of us thing. Mm -hmm. I even did a solo performance on a very, um, a very, a very important topic to me. My father had worked in the '60s and in the part of the '70s. He worked in the Pentagon. So he always referred to himself as a liberal warmonger. <laughs> so I did a, I did a performance based on a, on a book by Leonard Lewin, who was, a, who was a New Yorker actually. Um, a book that was distributed in 1963 uh, purporting to be a study of the possibility and desirability of permanent peace. And it, and it was a complete hoax. Mm -hmm. And so I did a performance based on that. That, that was the one, I mean, did I own that? No, I still felt that it was sort of part of the group's thing. Yeah. And it's all, it's documented. You can find it. It's that the piece, my piece was called Shades of Grey. Mm -hmm. There's a whole description of it on the website. The, oh, archi be, the, archive, the archive is quite thorough. I'll be on there tonight. <laughs> so whenever you're, you're making your own stuff too, did that maybe help you sort of say, this is the stuff that I'm doing with, collaborative with other people and then I'm doing my own, my own artwork as kind of a separate Yeah, thing. I used to refer to performing as like a hobby. Mm -hmm. And it was also a way to be with Iris. Like yeah. if I wasn't in the performances, I wasn't going to see her that right, much. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and we travel. We went. Uh, you know, we went. We went. We didn't go on tour, but we would get go to colleges and do performances. Yeah. And uh, but I kept my personal two-dimensional work to myself. Yeah. Uh, although I did do the toothpick sculptures that I did mm, two years ago. Mm -hmm. I did those in those days too, but wasn't really sure whether they were me or not. Now, now I'm sure they were me. Yeah. And most of them were destroyed from that time, but I, I remade a yeah. lot of them. Um, but I, I also remember Iris saying back in those days, when I, when I, was, I was making half-hearted attempts to show, and I did some showing. I showed with Wolf Gallery on 6th Street, um, and I had a few aborted successes, I guess I could say. I was like invited into galleries and then disinvited <laughs> in really rude, fucked up ways. Can you yeah. say fuck on the podcast? You can as much as you want. Okay, well, <laughs> those people really fucked up yeah. and fucked me up. But no, they didn't fuck me up. They actually made me stronger. Yeah. You know? And I actually, I remember talking to Iris about it at the time and she said two things. She said, you're not going to get recognized for what you're doing for a while because people aren't ready for it mm -hmm. and one of these days 
Some people will really fall in love with your work, and you'll be all right. That's pretty prophetic. And I say that to people, but it's true of so many people. Yes. Yeah. It's, 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 it's not, I'm not trying to say it's a cliche, but it's, if, if, you know, anyone who's listening to this feels frustrated or feels rejected, uh, it's normal. Every artist gets rejected and mm -hmm. reacts to it with frustration sometimes. But uh, persistence yeah. pays off. I think that's a, a sort of well sort of documented, at least through conversations with younger and you know, older artists that, you know, it's kind of like that, that feeling, if you stay with it, you hang around, you commit to your work, and you see it out, you know, things, sooner or later you'll find your audience. I mean, Or your audience will find you, yeah. or you, it's, it's a war of attrition in a yeah. way. And this city doesn't make it easy to, to weather the storm. No, it doesn't, it doesn't. It's funny you mentioned something about, we talked about your studios, but I think the last time I changed studios was 1988 or 89. Was that the Chinatown studio? Yeah, I'm still there. Yeah. Uh, that's 27 years now. That's a long time. It's beginning to feel like too long. It's strange. Isn't it funny, though, if you've been in a situation, I don't know what it is. I get that, too, where if I live in the same place for too long, I feel, even if I don't want to move because I hate moving, part of my brain is like, you need to get out of here just to recalibrate, mm. you know, and start to get a fresh view of things or something. In studios, I feel that way too, because every time I move my studio, I get this kick, this like huh? rejuvenation of like seeing things differently, new space, new light. Mm. I clean shit out that hasn't been cleaned in a decade, you know, like things like that are, are kind of... Yeah, maybe that's what I'm reacting to. I'm not sure. Maybe I just have to throw away about half of everything else. Clean up shop, <laughs> paint everything white, fresh we'll start. See. We'll see, we'll see. Well, your studio before that was in East Williamsburg, wasn't it? It was, it was yeah. Morgan and Grant, yeah, near your place. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it was a different time then. Oh, man, that was a talk about fucked up. The Wild West out there. <laughs> I remember somebody broke into the place I was uh, in. It was a bunch of people. Um, Tom Martinelli kind of held the lease, and then mm -hmm. he you know, what, did, did what artists do. He did it in the ethical way. He's not the guy who like rents an entire floor and then takes half the floor for himself and rents the other half to, to, pay to for 400 them. other people yeah, that get yeah. 100 square feet each and fucks them over. That so happens a have, lot, yeah. I think it's evil. Yeah. It's, I'm just saying, evil. Anyway, <laughs> Tom was not evil and I had this uh, very, very cold Brooklyn studio and uh, I had to work with like fingerless gloves and like two jumpsuits. Mm. <laughs> and I was trying to make all this fine work, this fine yeah. compressed painting on metal, and it was not happening. Yeah. It's like playing guitar in the cold. You just can't hit the notes, you know. Yeah, it's exactly. Like your hand frees up. You it's, can't. It's, it's almost worse than playing guitar in, in 90 degree humidity or 90% oh, yeah. humidity. Oh, I take fingers the heat. are slipping, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 At least there's movement there. At least there's movement, right? A little twang. But. But uh, the break-in, yeah, I, I remember going out there one Sunday, like 10 o'clock in the morning, and, and we, we, we locked up the studio at night. We actually closed the door, locked the locks, the actual deadbolt kind of mm -hmm. locks, and then we had these two eight-foot-long I-beam things. Oh, you just like... And clamped them 
you know, locked them to the door. So the doors, you had to break these massive padlocks, four massive padlocks to get to get the door open, to yeah. get to the locks, to the dead bolts, right. which you could have probably popped with a crowbar, right? Yeah. So I get up to the floor, and everything's intact on the door. But right next to the door, mm -hmm. a massive hole in the wall. <laughs> they just cut a hole <laughs> in the wall. Like they said, fuck the door. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just, they, you know, just plaster wall, man, you know, mm -hmm. plaster lath. They've got all of my neighbor's tools. Oh. I was going to say, how much valuables are in a studio? Really? I had a computer. I was trying to make drawings on a computer and completely failing. It was, I wasted like a year of my life. Wait, what year was this? This was 88. You had a computer? Was it like mm -hmm. a Mac It was a leading or? edge. No, it was a leading edge MS-DOS <laughs> doesn't sound real. <laughs> no, leading edge was a very, a very um, uh, popular computer at the yeah. time. Well, with a name like that, you better be. Exactly. That's what Bark Frameworks first got when they when they started using computers for their records and all that stuff. So I thought, oh, like, they got one. I'll get one. Leading edge. Yeah. So there was software you could draw on it. I thought like Mac. Yeah, Paint it was had. A, there was a software called Generic CAD. Uh huh. And what I did was actually I had a pretty good sized studio for about three hundred a month, and so I I had a painting studio space which was freezing in the winter, and then I built a little room within another part of the, of the loft. So stay warm? Yeah, oh. and I put the computer in there, put a door on it, put a storage unit up on top so I could pack everything away and have a nice empty studio to work in. I was making large, really screwed up aluminum paintings, which I still, I have, I have one of them, I sold one they of exist. them. Yeah, um, pretty unsuccessful, but uh, but I would sit in that room, and th they walked right past. But can you? Who can sell a computer? As, you know? Yeah. Can a junkie sell a computer? Yeah, it's a, a different. See like a guy tools. On a street corner, computer, computer. Right, know, right. It's, it's like a drill happen. is going to get sent. A drill, sold yeah, in Like yeah. a minute. No problem. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Not the leading edge. Right. You sell it to a mob construction guy, right? For yeah. Ten cents. Yeah. The around the corner. Probably. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's probably still around the corner. Yeah. <laughs> Like next door to you. Yeah, it's still be, it's still in use on Morgan yeah. Avenue. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then yeah, it was pretty rough out there. And I, I think I, and Joe was born in nineteen in the end of nineteen eighty eight. Mm -hmm. Joe Sienna. And I was very involved in the kid stuff from yeah. the beginning. Uh, but so you were still living in the city, right? Yeah, and I was still living with Iris. You were commuting, yeah. commuting out there. I was commuting out there on a on a on a three-speed, I had a Raleigh three-speed, mm -hmm. and I could get out there in ten minutes. Over the bridge? Oh, yeah, that's... all door to door. I'd ride like as fast as I could. Yeah. And um, <laughs> first, for survival. <laughs> well, I'm about to tell you. I wouldn't mention this. It wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't a story. In right, it. right. I think it was '91. I was riding back over the Williamsburg Bridge. It was really hot, and I was just wearing. I was wearing like spandex bike shorts and a muscle shirt and a little fanny pack with my wallet in it mm -hmm. and my pot of course right and um, this guy comes out of the shadows and he grabs the handlebars as I get when I'm at my weakest 70 strokes of the of the of the pump yeah. of the pedals get me up to the semi-level portion of the bridge and I'm out of breath I was a smoker at the time and uh, he comes out and he says, listen, man, I just, I just 
just need some cash, just some, a little donation, just give me a little donation. So I start to work this cardboard rubber band wallet that I had mm -hmm. out of my fanny pack, and I'm trying to work like a five out of it, I think that'll buy him off, and he just cold cocks me oh. with maybe a roll of quarters in his hand or something, I don't know what. And I saw this flash of light pass from left to right, because he hit me on the temple. He, 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 he took, hit me with a right hook yeah. and broke my jaw in three places. Oh, and then he screamed, I got a gun. Give me the wallet. As if you were coherent at that point. <laughs> like, you know. He was shocked that I wasn't just down. Oh, you, you didn't, he didn't drop you? No, uh -uh, I was conscious. Wow. And you were on a bike, though. I was standing. Like you had a foot down on the bike. I, had, I, think, I think I had both feet down. Because I was trying to work the cash out of the wallet without him seeing that I had more than five dollars. I had eighteen dollars. Oh, oh. not so anymore. That was a lot of money. Yeah. And then he just pulled the money out and threw the rest of the, the cardboard down. I think it just had an American Express card. And mm -hmm. it was, I didn't have a driver's license, ID, and uh, and he took the bike. Jeez. <laughs> so I, I loped home. You had to fix your jaw. Got my jaw wired shut, yeah. I was macrobiotic at the time, too, so that was, I oh. was pretty scrawny and yeah. smoker, like, pretty, pretty cadaverous, you know. Healing wasn't probably it was, quite as fast as it could have been. <laughs> let me tell you this, since we're, now that we're talking about it, I went on a 10-week liquid diet, and I could open my mouth once a week for checkups. So I had my jaw wired shut for 10 weeks, and I would puree everything. Yeah. And I had the smoothest bowel movements ever. <laughs> yeah. God, that's, if you ever want to get really regular, the puree everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Smoothies. Let, let, that, let that blender do the chewing, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so right, refried beans, and so there was like no dairy. All it was like beans, rice. Oh, no yogurt? Or rice cereal, no. uh, maybe soy yogurt. I would get those, um, Soy milk uh, things, soy milk plus maple syrup, vanilla yeah. drinks, and freeze them, and then beat the shit out of them and slurp them down. Right. Yeah. And that's rough. How so long? That did, was, how that, long did you stay in the studio after that incident? Did that make you sell that or get out of that lease quick? Or no, it it, it, it freaked me out, but it also. I realized that it, you know the kid was the kid needed supervision. You know, so this is a baby. Yeah. And and Iris didn't have to. I didn't want her to do that much. And I wanted to be closer by. Mm -hmm. So I just started looking in the newspaper for uh, for Manhattan real estate. And 83 Canal Street was listed. Yeah. And it was. And I was thinking. I kept seeing this listing. And I was thinking. Oh, it'll be too expensive, and it's, it's a pretty big listing. So I thought, maybe there's something wrong with the building. And I finally checked it out, and I loved it. So I moved in. No, I would imagine. Paid $100 more. That's it? For a, about one-third the space. Yeah, but it's right there. And no roommates, no sharing. Oh, yeah. No sharing. I just didn't, I, I figured I've got a kid. I have, I also had a, a after leaving Bark in 85, I was cutting mats for a living. I was doing it in the apartment on Fifth Street. Mm -hmm. I had a kind of Murphy shop with this table that I could set up in, a, in one of the rooms in this two-bedroom apartment. I'd make mats and sell them to people and then 
break it all down. Yeah. And I thought, I will move the mad cutting in there and have a kind of multi-purpose mad cutting facility plus studio, mm-hmm. all in about 300 square feet. It's a pretty good setup. Of, not the room we're sitting in. Yeah. That's, that's conducive to getting a lot done. Well, what it did was it kind of literalized compression. Mm-hmm. You know, because Iris, I think, gave me compression through the performances. Because I was more of a process artist and more into the phenomenology of seeing and making and, you know, that kind of tuttle, post-minimal thing. Yeah. Uh, representing things that aren't supposedly art but become art. Mm-hmm. Uh, shifts in scale. Um, materiality. And then I really got involved in the notion of crafting. You know, when it takes a week to make a minute, you can map that onto, you know, take a week to make an eight by five drawing or something like that. You know, the idea of slowing things down, compression, compression, compressing. Mm -hmm. And um, what I did in in, in the first studio that I rented at 83 Canal was I built a, a cabinet the size of, of one of the walls, about four feet deep, and I just put everything in there. Yeah. So now the room is smaller, but there's nothing in it. Right. And since then, I've actually put sort of drawers in some of those cabinets so you can actually get further to the back, because there's mm-hmm. stuff in the back that I put there 27 years ago <laughs> that I... <laughs> Maybe you do need that deep clean. <laughs> there's some... <laughs> well, I'm a pack rat. Yeah. I don't care. I'll, you know... I used to say I'll leave that place horizontally. Right. <laughs> but maybe I want to be in control of that, you know, I'm not sure. There's, there's, there's work up there that I, that I don't remember making, that's for sure, mm-hmm. from the early 80s, from, from, the, from the farmhouse in Ithaca days. And yeah. Stuff. Do you collect other things besides storing My your own work? work? <laughs> yes, unfortunately I do. Yeah, I collect manual typewriters. Manual typewriters. Yeah, I have about 100 of them. Wow. Those aren't small. No. And, or light. No. <laughs> it's a problem. But they sometimes come with beautiful cases. They oftentimes. Some of the rare ones I have have beautiful bent wood cases and wow. beautiful decals. Yeah. Sort of ornate gothic. And the mechanisms of them are fascinating. Do you use them ever? Yes, I do. Yeah. In fact, I recently, meaning three years ago, started making drawings. That, that was the next question. Yeah, I mean, you could, you could see that, you know. I saw the question coming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but those are amazing. And when you grow up with those, you know, my mother had like a that kind of '50s blue powder blue typewriter. I forget who made it, but you uh, know, this, a ladies' machine. Yeah. Yeah, and you Maybe. have you have the the that sort of experience of touch, just like the old phones when you used to you know, do all that crap. I mean, mm-hmm. there's something about that, but it feels so long ago. But it must be nice to just pull one of those out and just have at it. Yeah, I used to have a very regular correspondence with an artist friend, Dan Schmidt, and we always wrote on typewriters. Mm-hmm. And then when I got, I guess, my second computer, I started writing him, you know, using Word or something. Yeah. And he would send, he would answer me. He still would, wouldn't get a computer. <laughs> and he lost all the goddamn letters I sent him, and I saved all the ones he sent oh. me. And so I have like hundreds of letters from him. They're fantastic. And he's a really good 
writer and prose stylist and very yeah. writes beautiful letters. And uh, he told me back in 97 about a guy named Martin Titel on um, Fulton Street. He read an article in the Atlantic Monthly about this old typewriter repairman. Mm -hmm. And and he read, he sent me, cut it out, or copied it and sent it to me. And, and I just went down to see him. I just, I want to meet this guy. I think I had two typewriters at the time. Mm -hmm. No. No, I had, oh no, he knew, wait a minute, I had started buying typewriters. I think I had maybe 10 at the time. And uh, I called him and he said, yes, I do typewriter repair and I'll clean and I'll make your machine completely new. Yeah. It'll be like you bought it in 1931, something like that. Mm -hmm. So I took three machines down there and he, he charged me $600 Whoa. a machine to clean it. <laughs> <laughs> they cost me like ten dollars right flea market and i was so in awe of the guy and i just had a my first show so i had a little extra money yeah i paid him like eighteen hundred dollars what crazy but he, he changed the rubber on everything he cleaned every single part he took half the machine apart put it back together again mint condition and they're in mint condition yeah yeah they're, they're, they're really beautiful they could go to the museum now. and then he put his decal on there <laughs> he was he was such a famous person he, um, he was one of the most famous people you've never heard of right right and um, and I I think that was the last time we did business but I got to know his son and he was in his late 80s when I when we met and you'd go down there and he'd be in a white lab coat mm -hmm. such a gentleman yeah, yeah. You know? and um, he's a professional yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no he took it so and uh, when he died, he was in his mid-90s, not only did he get an above-the-fold obituary with a picture mm -hmm. in the New York Times, mm -hmm. big picture, yeah. and a big obituary, too, because long stories about him. Not only that, but he got the one obituary that The Economist does a week. They only do 50 obituaries a year. Yeah. Fantastic. So he had a following. Yeah. Like a lot of people appreciated it. A lot of famous did. people went to him yeah. for typewriter repair. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the machines, I, I, it, was a, it was just a pastime. And, a, and, yeah, another way to slow things down. I'm always looking for new ways to slow it all down. Yeah, yeah. But then, but then when I was in Rome uh, 2013, I started thinking about typing drawings mm -hmm. and I of course I hadn't brought a typewriter with me right. so I had to go find one <laughs> which I did and I made about 25 drawings there and I just continued to do that so you're working on those no I haven't I, no you have them though have you shown them the gallery has a number of them oh, and, yeah. and, um, and another gallery uh, Hiram Butler mm -hmm. has some and he, he did a very small show, a small selection. He showed about 12 of them a few years ago. I'm going to go out on a limb and say 8.5 by 11 was your size <laughs> you went with? Yeah, 11 by 8.5, vertical. Yeah. I, did, I think I've just done my first horizontal one, though, because I have some wide carriage machines. Mm -hmm. I could type a drawing that's, you know, 27 inches wide by N inches long, but yeah. it doesn't feel right to me. 
Yeah. I like that. I, I mean, I make a lot of drawings of that same size anyway. But I like that. I like that intimate scale. Yeah. There's something, uh, there's an inherent dialogue between the page and those, those letters, you know, at that scale. So that's the yeah. There's a kind of pedestrian modesty to, to them too. Mm -hmm. You know, that's. I mean, I started painting or drawing at eight and a half by eleven for money reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, in the eighties, I. Uh, I bought a ream of acid-free paper, for like ten bucks. Yeah. And I had no money, and I actually had a studio. The, the studio before the Brooklyn studio was a studio on Eldridge Street with a dirt floor. A basement studio for 150 bucks a month. That's the Lower East Side. The Lower, the Lower, Lower. <laughs> lower, Lower East Side. There was a little urine problem, too, since yeah. it was sort of under the fault, the, you know, the, oh, the sidewalk. Jeez. Yeah. But it was a pounded dirt floor, pounded dirt floor mm -hmm. with, um, with, with enamel paint, floor paint yeah. on the dirt. Just to seal it. Yeah. Keep it from kicking up. Keep the up. dust. Keep the dust down. Yeah. <laughs> My house growing up had that. We had a dirt basement. Basically, yeah, yeah. The side of our basement well, was you dirt. Are you a hillbilly? No. Well, kinda. Where, where, where Pittsburgh. Oh yeah, that. I just read uh, Hillbilly Elegy. What's by that? J.D. Vance. I don't know that. It's a new book mm -hmm. by a, a young Republican, actually, about his what he called his hillbilly parents. Hillbilly family moved up from the hollers of Kentucky mm -hmm. to southern Ohio. Yeah, it gets real it gets deep real. south in, in Ohio and Pennsylvania. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, so we, I had that. So, they, so you had that studio with a painted floor. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And when did you start having the, you know, visits or, you know, sort of aggressively trying to get the work out there? Because that was. We're talking like mid-80s, right? Mid to late 80s? Yeah, well, what I did was, because I was a mat cutter, <laughs> I did a little thing to get gallery attention. Um, and that's how I ended up showing with Wolf. Mm -hmm. But my, my brother-in-law-to-be was, is a photographer, and he used to make his money uh, photographing art. Mm -hmm. And we traded. He would photograph my art and I would mat and frame his photographs. So I had four by fives of all these paintings from the 80s. Um, and I made giant slide mounts for them. Instead of, you know, you hold the corner of this acetate thing, yeah. acetate sleeve, I would actually make a, a double-sided mat and insert these four by fives into the mats and then I would make a little museum board box for them. It was very elegant. You pull a little yeah. tab, and you'd have ten little slides of these. And that's how you showed paintings. Your work. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, the paintings were—they're okay. I mean, they're, they're not. I think I'm making better work now. We always <laughs> think we're making yeah. better work. What's your What's your favorite piece? The one Ideally, I did yesterday. The yeah. one I'm about to do. Yeah, the whole <laughs> Hopefully, right? Okay. No, I'm, I'm. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's the hope. That's Just, true. Maybe you have more hope than I. I just. I, yeah, I can't play favorites anymore. But anyway, I went to I went to uh, to Wolf Gallery and and it got their attention. Like I got home and the phone rang. Yeah. Yeah. Ten minutes from the they took the slides and then they. That's a good feeling. And then another ten minutes went by and they came over. They wow. Walked, they walked on over. 
but it didn't really lead to much. I mean, I, I showed a number of times with them, and I think I sold two pieces. Um, but you then, were getting out there. I mean, people yeah. could see the work. No, and I also, when I, when I talk to students or aspiring people about this stuff, I say, you're interested in showing, right? They said, yeah, well, why don't you show the gallery you're interested in them? Yeah. Why don't you go to find a gallery that you think you would like to show at and go there and say interesting things about the work you're looking at. Yeah, talk to and them. Pay attention to them. They're people too. Right. You know, don't be Mr. or Ms. Ms. Needy. Mm -hmm. like, um, so I, I, I was 39 when I really started showing more and it, and it happened in a very kind of correct organic way to me at least to me um, Joe Amrine started a little gallery called Pierogi mm -hmm. it was called Pierogi 2000 yeah. back in then because it was 1995 I right think. and that was the future right 2000 <laughs> <laughs> over on 9th North 9th North Street, Street. Yeah. yeah yeah and he had a little little space and um, he originally wanted to do modest little shows and then have a flat file mm -hmm. program and no drawing would cost more than I think he started at 50 bucks and he moved it up to 200 and it's still happening now and there's no limit to things there are still right. things for very affordable prices yeah. but it was it was basically an artist run space and it got it it galvanized the community it also came out of I mean, this, his attention towards me came out of a place called Four Walls. Mm -hmm. Did you ever go there back in those days? Yeah, yeah, I remember Four Walls. Yeah, because I became aware of your work when you started showing with Max Protach. What year was that? 99, well, 2000. Wow. 2000, yeah. Really? Mm -hmm. was, he, was he still a client of mine? Because I would cut mats for his architecture shows. Oh, yeah. And he did, usually didn't frame them, so mm -hmm. he'd like measure everything, cut the mats, and then they'd order plexi to go cover the mats oh, yeah, and yeah. T-pin them to the mm -hmm. wall. It's very um, architectural. And he was a great client, mm -hmm. great guy. And never asked me about my work. I never told him about my work. <laughs> <laughs> He's a business client. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I did that for a lot. Of, I did that with Paula Cooper, too. Mm -hmm. um, but where were we? You were talking about pierogi. Oh, right. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So Joe, Joe sort of picked up on this community thing that Four Walls was doing. Four Walls was having one-night shows with uh, panel discussions. Mm -hmm. All artist-run, donation-driven, $2 if you have it, beer for $1 in the back, lots of cigarette and pot smoking, and Amy Silman included me in a show. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember how that happened. I don't know how we knew each other. I knew she came to some of my performances, or our performances, back in those days. And, um, and I'd been in sort of deep kid diaper changing mode for, for at least a good two, three years by then. Baby boot camp? <laughs> and we had to do the cloth diapers. Oh, man. So, you know. That happens? Shit, I've heard of that. Shit happens. <laughs> <laughs> it really happens. Oh, man. God. When you can't just turn and put it in a can and it goes no. away, it really happens. <laughs> well, we had a, they, there was a diaper service at the time. Oh, really? So we paid, we'd pay, they, they would come by with all these beautiful, clean diapers and take away this horrendous, toxic, toxic, <laughs> toxic bag every week. Biohazard. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I think, I think that's, so the pierogi, 
And then somehow, oh, because of pierogi, a gallerist named Maria Cristina Paradicini, Christine mm -hmm. Rose Gallery, she saw my work. And Joe called me and he said, she's really flipped out. She wants to give you a show. And I said, great. Does that mean I can't have a show with you? And he said, you don't need a show with me. Have a show with her. And I said, no, I'm having a show with you. And then I'll have a show with Isn't her. that amazing that he was actually like a springboard, like an open springboard guy. Like he just wanted to, to give people the opportunity and to go on and do things. It seemed like yeah, he was. He oh, still is. Yeah. He still is. I mean, his program has changed, and he's he's become more of a, um, uh, he's been more of a constant for some people. Yeah. Don Clements and mm -hmm. and others, um, John O'Connor, Jim Torok. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a rare reaction from any person who runs a space ever to be like, oh, you should go show with them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I said, no, I want to have a show with you. <laughs> These paintings are for you, and I, you know, and so I made her wait a year, and she was willing to do that, mm -hmm. and um, and that that show was that show frightened me because I'd worked for so many years. It probably took me five years to make the show, but I wasn't living on. There was no money coming in for the painting, so I was still um, subsistence framing. That's yeah. what I used to call it. That's elegant. <laughs> My English can be elegant if I think about it, but uh, um, it, it, what frightened me about the show was that it was well received. That didn't frighten me, but was what frightened me was that I looked around the room and I thought, I don't think I can ever do this again. Nobody's ever going to give me five more years to make another show unless oh, I just... Oh, yeah. So the work, like the workload of it, yeah. just the time yeah. it took. Yeah, and the fact that I took the time, I had a very strong feeling that these things would be liked mm -hmm. by somebody, just like Iris had predicted, right? But I didn't, I didn't have a timetable and I didn't want to push it. I wanted to make the work as good as it could possibly be. But you were in a situation where you felt, I mean, you were working a job, and but you felt like you could take the time you need, right? I was self-employed, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I lied to my, my clients all the time. You know, they'd want to come in on a Thursday and I'm saying, I'm sorry, I'm booked with another client. While you're making work. And I was the client, right, yeah, right. I was paid. And that, that was fine. Yeah. I, I, had very, I had very good clients who were turned out to be friends. Jim Welling was a, mm -hmm. was a client and, and became a friend, and I wound up showing with Jay Gorney in his gallery at mm -hmm. the time, too. Jay Gorney and John Lee and Karen Bradley. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, I guess I, I still feel a little bit like that, that I was right. I don't want to shoot myself in the foot, but I do have to say I kind of miss that, that uh, lack of pressure. Mm-hmm. Do you feel the pressure now? I feel a little pressure. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, it's not a—it's not a, an awful feeling. It's just a kind of—it's like uh, if you have like I have a little knee problem right now, just because I'm aging and I keep running, even though I probably shouldn't as much as I do. But it doesn't hurt. It just feels weird. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And 
we have to get used to feeling weird. Yeah. Something else feels weird too. Something about the political state of things. Yeah, it's a weird time. Yeah. Is and it nice having a show up during that? You know? Yeah, it is. And it's funny, the rea- some of the comments I'm getting from people, which are, and which are, I wouldn't say everybody's talk, saying this, but there's a lot of people saying that these new drawings make people happy. Which is nice. And they make them laugh. Yeah. And it was never my intention to be whimsical, but I, I kind of love that. Yeah. It's real. I think it's really interesting how the climate, the cultural climate, political, whatever it is, whatever's going on, how that affects the way your work is seen when you show it. Even the time of year. Like if you have a show in the dead of winter versus the summer. Well, yeah, like I think I f- you're probably right. Yeah. I think that, that affects it. Just like if you go see a show and you see it in a shit dive bar as opposed to a gigantic stadium, it changes the way you... You know, it's it, and it's exciting as an artist to feel that you know it's never the same. Like you're going to have a different vibe, no matter everything's changing all the time. Right. Your work is kind of on its path, usually on its own path. But meaning intersects presentation and, yeah. and condition and zeitgeist. Yeah. Yeah, and it's deflected and magnetized and flipped and obliquely, you know, chipped away at and yeah. Yeah. And that's just something we have to accept too. Well, and we're in the business of communicating with people visually, and yeah, guess, you know yeah. every every communication that you create is affected by other communications. So it's, you know, I think in a time like now where it's really pointed because of you know current events, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, everything feels different. Mm-hmm. Like I I enjoy watching Saturday Night Live when political stuff's going down because oh, it's I just, always watch those intros. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it just feels different, you know, and it, they thrive in that environment. It feels energizing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I looked at a apropos of this, I was doing crits at Yale yesterday, and there's this Iranian student, uh, really good, who is very involved in ornament, as you mm-hmm. might imagine, right? and non, not, not a, a non-human representation in many cases, but not at all. So he's not observing that kind of don't, don't depict. Theological non-representation. Right, no, no theological issues with yeah. this guy at all. Uh, and he adorned this staircase in the Yale galleries with this kind of quasi, like, almost like a kitschy Arab restaurant wall paintings of apples with faces on them, you know, sliced up. <laughs> Vases and, you know, birds eating cherries and, mm-hmm. and all these patterns around them. And then you get to the landing of, of, of the staircase and there's this painting on canvas that's surrounded by the wall painting and framed with two-by-fours, which are also painted. So it's just paint, fucked up painting everywhere. Yeah, layered. <laughs> yeah, and the painting in the frame is of this kind of Saddam-like, but it's sort of a hybrid tyrant face, mm-hmm. sort of where the windows of an airplane would be, the cockpit, yeah. sorry, because you're looking down at the plane as it's coming towards you. But the cockpit has a, a, an ass, and the, <laughs> the face is this just fascist cocksucker, and, and coming out of his, his face is this uncircumcised dick, and then he's holding out his arms as the wings, and there are these dicks under his arms. Oh my god, that's a lot. And there's all these headless people pouring down, and then there are these other people that look like they're doing the can-can, and they're kind of cowering below him. And, yeah. and I, sa- I said like the most un-Yale-y like, 
Kurt thing, I said something like, uh, this is so uplifting to look at this painting. This painting makes me so happy. <laughs> well, what was his reaction? <laughs> I think he was really... Bewilderment? He was jazzed. Yeah. Although, you know, then, of course, somebody else said, you know, this painting makes me really, really upset. Yeah. And I said, well, aren't they similar emotions? Yeah. You know, I was energized by the kind of defiant thrill that this guy who's lived under Ahmadinejad and yeah. Khomeini and the Shah yeah. and under a kind of blood-soaked uh, barbarism that we, are, yeah. that we are now no longer immune from in our little... Well, we're dipping the toes in the pool, so to speak. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. Well, if there is one thing that in recent weeks that has happened that I feel parallels that is that there is a lot of, um, you know, despair and, and anguish and anxiety, but there is energy. And you see people making things and there's, I've, I've seen it in my students, like there's an energy. Yeah, yeah, and, that's um, true. Oh, the t-shirts these, the, the students were wearing yesterday were amazing. Yeah. They're all making these political t-shirts and printing safety pins on things and mm -hmm. no it's a, it's terribly energizing that's i think that's partly why i had that i wanted to make a have a visceral reaction i was punch drunk from a whole day of crits but but i also uh, i meant what i said yeah and i still feel terribly energized by it because he was he was mapping these kind of two impulses the horror vacui the kind of celebration of food and, and even the kind of violence of cutting up apples and, then, you know, all of that. And yeah. there, there were knives in the murals as well. And then he just throws in this dick, 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 dictator, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, it was in a cockpit. In a cockpit, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, oh, that sure. sounds pretty layered. You know, one of the first... Um, pieces that I had that kind of reaction to, but it was a little different, but a real visceral reaction was, uh, remember that um, Dial 911 History by Johann Grimopres? It's a, he, no. he projected it at Deitch Projects, but it's... I just saw him today. Sorry, oh, really? He's teaching at SVA. Yeah, yeah. 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 He, uh, he did the, what, so this video is basically like a condensed history of hijacking. And it Wait is... Wait a minute, it's a film. It's a, it's a film. I've seen part of it, yeah. Yeah. It is. I mean, I was a student still in undergraduate school, and oh. I came to New York, and I saw this. I wasn't ready, <laughs> you know, and I saw this video, and it just, it was one of those moments where it's like the power of, you know, of what could be. And it, it mixed satire with real dark imagery, and it, it, it sounds like in line with what you experienced, what your eyes were subjected to mm. and yeah. uh, it, it, that there's there's an energy and a power to that that I think is is really interesting and it's it's also important to to be an activist now yeah. and there are various ways you can do you can do it in your art or you can add it you can add a new angle to your work you can, mm -hmm. you can send a branch off into into politics uh, and you can write letters yeah you can Write them on a manual typewriter, even. Yeah. Take the <laughs> I, time. <laughs> I plan to do that. Yeah. 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 You can punch them out in postcards. 
Oh, Mike Ballou, one of the, the one of the founders of Four Wells, called last night. He's doing a T-shirt project. I'm going to raise money for the midterms. Mm-hmm. He did it for the '04 election too, um, the presidential. Uh, he's writing postcards to Trump. He's mm-hmm. just taunting him. Yeah. He's draw. He's sending drawings and writing these, you know, fuck you asshole type things without right. saying it. You know. Yeah. Well, he might you just think? be the guy who actually looks at all that stuff and it really affects him. Well, those mail rooms, they're, they're there. Yeah. I've been in them. Yeah, they, they take them very seriously. Yeah. People respond to their constituents. Right. So. Yeah, and I think this guy, more than any, anyone else, is, he cares about that, what, what people think. You know what I mean? Yeah, like we were in Washington and we got very close to the White House and we were... <laughs> We were uh, we were very loud. Yeah. And um, and apparently by the time I got back to my sister's place, she lives in Bethesda, so we got back there around five o'clock, and put on the news. And Sean Spicer runs down the stairs and goes into the White House press room and has a fucking hissy fit. Yeah. And I thought, oh boy, this is this is this is going to be exhausting. It is. So we've got to eat well, and, you know. Yeah. If you're macrobiotic, make sure to eat your nuts. Yep. And, you know. Exercise. Don't smoke as much as I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, preferably quit smoking. Yeah. If I can do it, anybody can do it. <laughs> make up for this last eight years of relative calm and yeah, sanity and exact and um, positivity. Yeah, and and turn this challenge into an opportunity. Yeah. We have an opportunity to remake the left. Yeah. And. Um, so I have, I have a lot of hope. I that's have a lot good. of hope. Um, yeah, well, that optimism maybe is, you know. Maybe that's part of what's in here. Maybe that resonates with what you're doing. Yeah. There's a cross, I mean, hey, if you want to read into it, there's a crossing borders kind of thing going on here, you know. That's true. Breaking that's true. out of Open the. Open borders. Yeah. Breaking out of the, uh, the constraints is definitely mm-hmm. something that I, I thought of as soon as I got into the, turned a corner into the second room, you know. I accept that metaphor. Yeah, why not? Yeah. yeah. What I was really, but the other thing I was thinking about, we, you know, I don't want to speak on so totally formal levels, but by, by drawing into the presentational space of the, of the, of the frame, yeah. I think the drawing kind of ceases to be anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is that? Is that cosmopolitanism? You know, rootless cosmopolitanist, yeah. <laughs> little fit, fucked up little noodly drawing. Yeah. I, I, I'm not a, I'm not so much of a, a, a planner, but I, um, I'm a, I'm a reactor. I react to the thing that came before, mm-hmm. and the next thing sort of. So the reason they drifted off the, off the page is that they were drifting around in the, in the rattling around in the, in the open space of the, of the drawings in the other room. And, uh, and I was already trying to embrace this, this less compressed space. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, think, I think we've escaped the boundaries, yes. Well, it's nice coming, the transition from those pieces out there that are, it seem interwoven, mm-hmm. they're like a network that are existing and fueling 
the, their own shape, you know? Mm-hmm. They seem hermetic in a way. And then you turn a corner and it's like they broke loose. Right. Even though there's still that kind of invitation to examine close up and sort of inhabit. When you look at detail, you kind of inhabit it and you mm-hmm. take a walk and you climb around on the textures or you, you navigate the spaces between things once you've gotten the kind of gestalt of the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of close, that close pull is something I may have relied a little more on in the past than I needed to. And so this is sort of announcing this other impulse. And when I'm, when I'm, when I made a couple of the larger ones, I think I did like five larger drawings in the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I made more of them, but, um, That, that that invokes something else, too. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but um, maybe it invokes a kind of corporal, corporeal relationship with with the form, rather than kind of headspace relationship. Yeah. What kind of, uh, what kind of, do you listen to music when you work? Or I listen news? to everything. Yeah. And I talk on the phone with a headset. Mm-hmm. You Bluetooth it but while you're working. I don't. I'm I'm, a, I'm into wires, man. Yeah. yeah. You like being grounded. Well, I, I, I can wear a I can wear a cell phone, but I like the wire. I don't like those, right. those little jawbone things. Yeah. Um, they never work that well for me. I'll tell you one thing: when I go to the gym and I'm using equipment, and I almost died on the headphone cord. Oh well, there's that. Yes. Yeah. And then yeah. I got I got. That was the one That's when you Bluetooth. Bluetooth. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, this might be good. It's funny, when I work out, I don't, I, I used to, I tried listening to things. I listened to the Arab Spring while I was running in the winter here. Mm-hmm. And then I just, I stopped wanting that. I wanted that one part of the day to be just me and my breathing. And it's my quiet, head. yeah. Yeah, and just the environment. Yeah. I run over to Brooklyn and back, so I, it, I kind of, I expand, you know, because I'm looking at the Brooklyn Bridge and I'm looking at the water and the boats and feeling the wind and all that. Yeah, that's a, that's a. But but I, I just uh, I think I said I read Hillbilly Elegy. I listened to Hillbilly Elegy. Yeah, you listen to. Books I listen on to tape. books on tape. Yeah. I listen to podcasts. Yeah, I've listened to this podcast while yeah. I've been painting. Yeah, I listen to. Um, Listen to Radio Lab, of course. A mm-hmm. lot of people do that. Savage yeah. Love, I love Savage Love. I'm listening to the, the Run Up, mm-hmm. Great New York Times podcast, which do I think you, has transitioned to something else now. Do you like comedy? I'm big into comedy podcasts. No, I don't listen to comedy podcasts. I like. And yeah. I listen to WFMU. Do you yeah. listen to FMU? Yeah, yeah. Occasionally. I mean, I do. I'm Not amazed, all the time. I'm amazed at how many younger artists don't listen to FMU. Yeah. Because when I started working at Bark Frameworks, they were listening to FM. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, radio was bigger then, though. Radio was the thing. That's yeah, where you would go. That's where you would hear new stuff. You know, I used to DJ in college. I was a jazz DJ, but oh, my yeah. friends were new music DJs, and all the new shit would come in, and right. we'd be the first ones to go grab that promo. And, and well, how do you find it. new music now? I don't know. I don't know. Spotify. Oh, I use online like you know now it's easier than ever to find new stuff is this too much well so how do you do it on spotify is this boring should we talk about something else everybody's listening to this knows like why is this guy asking about Spotify? no 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 it's great you <laughs> just sign up and you pay like a, a small fee a month and then you can you can listen to whatever you want on your device 
Right, I've yeah. heard that. Yeah. And but the you know I remember it's funny because I re- nowadays if I let's say there's like a, a band from you know Ghana that I hear like or someone tells me about and I'm like okay I want to hear this. Now I just type it in and it's there. I mean, I used to have to go dig through vinyl and right. I mean, I which was great. I used to love I going to other music and digging through and yeah. and taking that chance. Like you used to have to roll the dice and like this looks like it might be good and you'd read the little description that the record store guy would give mm-hmm. you and and sometimes you get it and you're blown away and sometimes you listen to it and you're like, yeah, this is not my thing, you right. know. But there was a, it was a crapshoot. Now it's like you can you just listen to it and there's no there's no risk, right. Well, the reason I like FMU is that I like the DJs. I like their yeah. minds. I've been yeah. listening to some DJs since Bark Frameworks. Yeah. There's one guy who's been on for 40 years. Yeah, I listen to Phil Schapp all the time. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, Bird see, Flight, the thing it's the same thing. You know? Radio, like radio, real radio. Right. You know, you, you, that's how I hear about new music. Yeah. Yeah. But I but, play music, and you play music. Yeah. Yeah, so that's another thing. I mean, I, you know... You still playing? I play every day. Yeah. I don't play a lot every day. Sometimes mm-hmm. I play just two songs. Katya and I will play, we'll sing a song or two while we're making dinner. Yeah. Or on the weekend or, you know, if I have a little more time some night, I'll just play for an hour or so. Mm-hmm. Try to yeah, learn a I song. Yeah, I It's therapeutic. It is. It's completely amateur for me. I have no, no ambition to, for it to have meaning. But that's liberating. You just pick it up and do your thing, and there's nothing yeah. on the line. You can just kind of explore. Yeah. It's, um, it's also, well, one of the reasons I said it's therapeutic is that it's, it's keeping me from going nuts. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my left hand is this, this is just like, it's like I've got a new left hand that knows so many things. Mm-hmm. My left hand knows all these chords and yeah. all these things. It, it, didn't, it, it couldn't physically do them when I started playing 10 years ago. Isn't it funny that if you're right-handed, too, that your left hand does all the work when you're playing guitar? Yeah, but, well, you would probably do a little flat picking and a little yeah. finger picking, yeah. But, but I mean, the but real the left, architecture is... The real architecture and the, and the precision of the left is really important. Yeah. Yeah. I love funny. that. I love that. But I was terrible at piano. I couldn't oh, yeah. get the whole right-left thing together. But I can yeah. play a lot of other instruments. Like, if the instrument is mm. one task, I can do it. Or yeah. even, like, you know, I, I played saxophone growing up. And oh, really? that, that's oh, wow. blowing and... That's you, blowing in two hands. Yeah. But it's not the whole... I'm mystified. I used to love going to see, uh, you know, Dr. Lonnie Smith, no. the jazz organist. It was amazing, because, you know, he, there's no bass player when he plays. It's him, guitar, and drums, usually, and he's playing the bass line down here, the lead up here, and his feet are doing shit, too. It's like, a, it, I can't get it. I, oh, he's playing the bass notes with his feet? Yeah, he play, uh, he, yeah that, that adds. Sure, I know. Yeah, yeah I so, it. I mean, it's just so, I, I, I can't relate to it. Like, I'm mystified, because I can't do all that at the same time. Like, if it's a solo, I'm thinking, i got to focus on the solo. He's doing all three at the same time. So, yeah, that's... I wish I could do that. Well, in another life. Exactly. (laughs) If there is one. And, you know, my kids, now he's playing guitar, and it's it's amazing. Oh, that's great. My kid did that, too, for a while. Yeah, it's really cool to see... He'll always have that, even if he doesn't stick with it. Yeah? Yeah. I, I think he'll probably take it up again. 
Well, that's our theory too. Is like you know, that's a cool thing to. No matter how far you take it later in life, if you just sit down and you walk into someone's room, there's a guitar there, you could pick it up and play. You know, mm. back in black. I mean, that's instant cool. You know, <laughs> absolutely. Just musical instruments like typewriters and bicycles. Mm -hmm. I love bicycles, but I don't collect them. I don't collect them. You don't I, have I, them fixed for six hundred dollars. No, I, I built one when I was a teenager, which I still have, and I, I love it. But you know, bicycles, typewriters, musical instruments—they are non-electric. Of course, electric guitars, notwithstanding, organs, notwithstanding. Yeah. They—they they are like cyber. They're not. They're like um. What's the word? What's the word? They don't really come to life until the, the muscles of the human body engage with them. Yeah. The, and in some cases, the mind. Mm -hmm. uh, there's something terribly moving about that. Yeah. You know, when you if you spend a little more than you think you should on a on a guitar, it's always worth it. Right. Because it it sounds just a little bit better, and the joy you get from that. Yeah. You know. But don't say this to too many art collectors, or they won't right, <laughs> right, as right. much work. Because <laughs> you get more joy yeah. out of a guitar than you do out of a drawing yeah. or a painting, I think. You know. See, I fight that urge because I love guitars, but and I, part of me wants to just collect tons of them, but mm. I can't do it. It's a space thing. Okay. But I still have my one Gretsch uh -huh. that I savor. That was made in the building that I, you know, my first studio when oh, I and came the, was in the Gretsch building. Oh, you're not there anymore. No, of course you're not there. No, anymore. they kicked everyone out. Made it luxur right. luxurious. Oh, you were there during the Gretsch, the famous, the famous uh, eviction. Yeah. The turning off of the power. Owner right? shut. Po owner shut off power. They didn't tin foil on the windows. Oh yeah, Vanessa, Vanessa Beecroft was a floor above me, and Miltos Manetas was in it. A bunch oh, of artists wow. were on on the one side, and wow. then some people lived on the other side, and they they gave us a boot. Good God. But yeah, I found an old 57, yeah, I found an old 57 Gretsch that was uh, 57, made, that's my made, vintage. Made in I'm the room. I'm a 57. I, I say that it was made in the room that I lived in. You should say that, even if yeah. it's not true. I mean, it, it's got the sticker for 60 Broadway, but yeah. It's a good it, good it, little guitar to have. Fantastic. I'd yeah. like to hear it sometime. Yeah. Let's jam. That sounds good. Well, yeah. congratulations on the show. It looks really good. Thank you very much. And um, how long is it up for? It's up until February 11th. February 11th. A week from tomorrow. And people can check out your stuff online. Yes. I'm sure you're a super active tweeter. No. <laughs> I've done. I have like eight Instagram followers, and I think I've put up five photographs. They're all pretty good, though. I didn't even know you were on there. What's your handle? Uh, I, it's j.sienna, I think. There's a, there's a few j.siennas, but... Imposters. No, there are people named Sienna yeah. out there besides me. <laughs> Who knew? Yeah. That's, a, that's another story. Right, right. I'll All right, tell well, you after we... After, we yeah, it's, <laughs> cool. it's too weird. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much, man. It was great <laughs> Thank talking. Thank you, man. Great thanks to talk with you. Thanks. work, studios, and exhibitions on the podcast website, soundandvisionpodcast.com. 
The introduction, narration, and music was provided by Michael Lovett of Nazca Lines. All other music was made by Lullatone, based out of Nagoya, Japan. Sound and Vision is produced, edited, recorded, and organized by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find more about my work at paintchanger.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.